Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today's founder, I mean, what a, what a journey. I mean, he's been at it a few times. Uh, I think that everyone is going to really learn from all the lessons, product market fit, uh, building, scaling, financing. I mean, you name it. So I guess without further ado, let me welcome our guest today, Alex Colmer. Welcome to the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you were obviously born in Ohio, but not necessarily raised there. It was kind of like a back and forth between New York, Ithaca, and Washington, D.C. So how was life growing up? Well, life growing up was uh, was good. I grew up in many ways kind of in the shadows of universities. My folks were both professors. And so when I was real young and we were living in Ithaca, my folks were getting their, their doctorates at Cornell. And then uh, when they got their first professorial jobs and moved down to, to, to D.C., and then actually moved back to, to Ithaca and they started working with, with the university there um, in high school. So, yeah, life was good. I, uh, I grew up in an environment that was very rooted around curiosity. I, I learned to you know, appreciate you know, reading and, and you know, all, all the things that go into the, the scientific method at, a, at an early age. And uh, I feel like in many ways I've kind of grown to appreciate them more and more as I've, as I've gotten older. And you think that that's why you ended up going after engineering? Yeah, you know, I think like like probably so many people, like, you know, I grew up, I was into sports and I played soccer and baseball and probably, you know, did all the things that, that most kids do and didn't spend a ton of time thinking about what life, you know, would look like when I grew up. And so, you know, I knew I was pretty good at math and science and figured that meant I should be an engineer. I knew the soccer coach at Cornell. I went and uh, went down and talked to the soccer coach at University of North Carolina and then ultimately went to Cornell, got in early decision as a well, as an engineer in general. And then after uh, a few years, I ended up sort of committing into the structural engineering program, sort of yeah, part of the, the civil civil engineering school. And and obviously your parents, being both professors, they were probably not very impressed with you having fun and playing a lot of soccer. <laughs> I think they were fine with me having fun and playing soccer. I think they probably would have preferred me to also um, be a little more focused on my studies. Uh, so that, that was the part that they were probably less impressed with. So how was it like for you, you know, being on your own at 19 when your parents say, hey, you, you really need to figure out? I was, I don't know, like in some ways fairly independent from a from a fairly young age. And yeah, my first couple of years at school, I 
you know, I, I really, I was smart enough to get sort of C's and C minuses basically without applying myself at all, which is really not a, not a great way to go through life. And after my, you know, first, first semester, sophomore year, you know, my folks kind of took me aside and said, hey, like, is this really the best that, that you can do? And I, you know, sort of thought about it for a second and said, no, I, you know, I'm pretty sure that if I tried, I could do a, a good amount better. And then they kind of came back with the the, uh, the, the one-two punch and they're like, all right, well, do you think this is a good use of our you know, hard-earned money then? And, you know, I couldn't disagree. I, I said, no, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think it is. And so, so we agreed that if I, you know, didn't do, um, you know, if I did basically get like a three O, that I would drop out and I would figure out how to pay my own way through college. Um, and, you know, needless to say, I didn't. Um, and so I went up uh, and filled out a, a voluntary leave of absence. And yeah, at 19, I, I, I left college. I really had no skills and certainly no academic record that would make anyone want to want to hire me. And I had to figure out how to come up with the, you know, fifteen or twenty thousand dollars to basically pay my way back through college. I mean, that's a real kick in the teeth as as someone who is, you know, otherwise quite confident in their abilities. And I started, you know, I thought about going out west and being a fly fishing instructor because I was really into fishing at a young age. And and ultimately I, I started like bouncing at a local bar on campus and then through that ended up, you know, taking over kind of like a catering business, uh, providing uh, refreshments to, you know, basically like sanctioned, uh, university sanctioned, um, you know, fraternity and sorority parties. So coming in with, you know, all the insurance and various other sort of paperwork to make those things, you know, operate safely. Uh, and then through that ended up taking over the bar and restaurant that it was run out of. And so when I was, I guess, 19, I had probably a couple hundred people working for me. And I worked literally 365 days in a row. There was, I never took a day off and I saved basically every penny I made. Uh, and so in, in a year I saved up all the money I needed and then went back and, and then finished my engineering degree. But now with a much different appreciation for academics, you know, cause there I was sort of writing these you know, big checks to the, to the bursar. And what I found was that when, you know, when you're the one sort of, um, you know, paying the bills, uh, I went to class every day. Um, and when you go to class, they teach you exactly what you need to know. And I you know, essentially got like straight A's from there on out. And I actually really enjoyed it. I found that the, the subject matter was incredibly engaging and, and I love being an engineer. Uh, and so I had these like two very, very different experiences as a, as a student. And I think as an entrepreneur, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade that experience for anything in the world because, you know, I learned early on that, you know, that failure is kind of part of life and, and that you can sort of deal with even the most like adverse situations, it, you know, that there's sort of always a solution. And I kind of got addicted to it. Like I, I knew from then on that I was always going to be an entrepreneur. So then I guess uh, being on your own at 19, you know, it's a tough one. You know, what, what, what would you say was the life lesson, you know, that, that was there for you to learn? I, I guess the one thing that I take away from it was that no matter how, dire things can look in any moment, they're always less bad than they seem. Um, you know, so in that time, I, I really probably felt like, you know, my, my sense of self-value uh, was incredibly diminished. And, and on, on one element, on one level, it would have been like one of the, like, it could have been like one of the worst periods of my life. But in retrospect, 
it, it was actually one of the best experiences of my life. Like it was, you know, like it was the challenge. It was the sort of failure that actually forced me to sort of, you know, learn my own potential. And so I think like the lesson there is that it's really easy to try and keep score in the middle of the game. And you might be thinking you're doing really well or you're doing really poorly. But oftentimes when you're, when you think you're doing poorly, you're actually having the most uh, positive learning moments and things like that. And so I think going forward for me, I basically just like turn the scoreboard off completely. Like I, I never pay attention to whether I think I'm doing well or, or poorly because I have, because I have a clear sense that it's probably going to be a faulty gauge. Got it. So after, after college, you know, fast forwarding a little bit here, after college, you did a little bit of, um, of consulting. So software, software consulting. And that was a, the clear segue into launching your actual first business. So how was that transition and that experience like? Yeah, and no, it was really, so it's really interesting. So I, I quickly realized that, at, at least for me, I was always going to optimize to be the broadest person possible. So anything that felt like it was going to push me down a narrow path, I I kind of recoiled from it. So, so I, so even though I graduated with a degree in structural engineering and, and sort of passed my sort of EIT exams and had sort of a, you know, was on the path to be a licensed structural engineer, I didn't want to do that because I felt like it would end up like pushing me down a very narrow and specialized path. And I knew that that wasn't the right thing for me. So I went into, you know, to, to, you know, consulting, I went and worked for a company called Sapient and spent, you know, a little bit of time in their sort of operations department. And then, you know, it was actually sort of like, you know, writing some code and, and, um, you know, sort of you know, cutting my teeth there and, and then ultimately sort of managing, uh, you know, some sort of you know, relatively small scale kind of development projects. And, it, you know, it, it didn't take long there where, where I was like, you know, what, like the idea of building someone else's technology, um, it just was you know, very hard for me. And, and I wanted to go into like the, the process of building companies. And so I went and uh, met a, another guy from Cornell who had, had been successful, you know, previously built and took a, a company called 24-7 Public, you know, worked for him for a couple of years, you know, started to learn a bit about the process of, of entrepreneurship. And then I guess it would have been around age 24 or 25, you know, sort of set out and started, you know, started building my own businesses. And the first sort of like meaningful company I started was when I started with my you know, current partner, Jason Donnell, and then uh, another, another guy named Morali Tugopali. We built a company called Autumn Games, which was uh, a video game publisher. So then let's talk about the, the video game publishing experience, because you, were, you, were, you did this company for, for quite a bit. So, so, I mean, what was that, I would say, journey that you experienced with, with Autumn Games? I mean, tell us about it. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think journey is probably a perfect way to describe it. Uh, you know, it had, you know, real ups and downs. You know, we learned a lot along the way. And I think, again, it was another of these, like, really important, like, learning lessons for me. So when we started that business, the thinking was, was fairly simple. Like, you know, we, at the time, some of the, you know, like we, we'd started to see innovation in the film finance model. So you had, um, you know, legendary pictures and Dune and um, uh, you know, a number of those sort of early like film funds being launched. And we kind of felt like some of those models could and should be applied to the game space, which was, you know, kind of less mature and had kind of more room for, for innovation. So 
um, you know, Jason and I got together and, and then our third partner, Morale, he'd actually been running Activision's whole North American studio. And we, uh, you know, we sort of put together uh, a model to, to make a number of kind of, you know, large scale, like true AAA games and, and actually worked out a deal with Sony where we were going to make them sort of exclusive for the, the, the Sony PlayStation platform in exchange for them essentially like sort of guaranteeing a, a certain degree of like essentially break even on the, on the, on the each investment. And then we went and took that, you know, contract and actually had the Royal Bank of Scotland uh, agree to kind of underwrite what at the time was going to be about a $400 million fund to, to launch the business. And we were sort of moving along well with that. And then all of a sudden kind of everything went, you know, completely sideways with, with RBS. Um, they ended up basically getting uh, nationalized by the Bank of England. And, and, and it was the early days of what, you know, now is sort of like the 2008, 2009 financial collapse. And so, you know, after RBS, we started working with, with Merrill Lynch. Uh, they, they signed uh, an agreement off the Merrill Global Private Equity Fund to uh, underwrite, you know, basically to finance a, I think it was $125 million kind of equity investment to launch this business. And then Merrill got you know, bought by Bank of America. And, uh, and again, you know, sort of the rug was pulled out from under us. And meanwhile, we'd actually started working on our first game, which was this game called Def Jam Rapstar. And, um, you know, we had sort of fairly large development obligations. Our financing had, had just gone away. And, you know, really there was no option other than to just sort of push through. And, and you know, luckily uh, the game, you know, had a great deal of enthusiasm around it. Um, you know, it was getting sort of early good reviews and, and the sort of comparable games with sort of rock band and guitar hero were, were, were really big franchises. And so, you know, we got in this period where we essentially were basically raising the capital to fund the business on sort of a week to week, month to month basis, you know, always with this kind of sword of Damocles, like hanging over um, the company's heads you know, with, with, you know, probably a hundred, 150 people, uh, you know, and sort of payroll between us and, and the actual developers working on it. And we just always found a way to, uh, to make it work, um, and ended up sort of, you know, completing the game, you know, launching it, you know, that, that period though, that sort of multi-year period of really never having much more than a you know, couple months of capital, you know, visibility, um, you know, you really learn how to like dial down the uh, emotiometer and and just get like really zen when you're in that period for for a long time. And again, I think that like really kind of forced me as an entrepreneur to to just kind of lower my heart rate and and, and understand that no matter how bad things get, you always can sort of find a way to to kind of work through things. So then, what what ended up happening with this rodeo with Autumn Games? Well, I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it had, it continued to have, you know, ups and downs, you know, throughout where, you know, we ended up sort of launching that game, generated, you know, sort of, uh, you know, $25, $30 million in the first like month. And then, and then we ended up in a, you know, a very long and protracted contract dispute with, uh, you know, the publisher for the game at the time um, that ended up, you know, in a kind of multi-party, you know, lawsuit. And so all of a sudden now I had to sort of learn all about what, you know, litigation looks like and, you know, all of those things. And, and, you know, like my experience with college uh, and leaving college, you know, again, this was a massively negative experience in my life where, um, you know, like everything, it was, the rug was just sort of ripped out from under us. You know, we had this hundred million dollar give or take business that kind of went essentially to zero and, you know, we had to, you know, sort of let go, you know, all of our employees. Um, you know, I 
I've worked for years, you know, without paying myself a, a penny and just sort of stuck with it, just trying to figure out, all right, well, how do we get through this? How do we, you know, you know, sort of end up like winning, you know, this litigation, getting all the games back and, and like that, that process, you know, matured me a million times. And I think, you know, basically just learn, you know, that like, as long as you sort of stick with your, you know, stick with character, stick with integrity and just deal with things the right way. And like, I feel like anyone, you know, almost anyone I know would have, would have just left, you know, would have been like, you know what, there's, there's no profit here. There's, I'm not being paid. Like it's time to move on, but I just couldn't, I couldn't let go. Uh, and, and same with Jason. And so we, you know, we fought this thing all the way through until, you know, a couple of years later, we ended up like getting all the games back. And then ended up, you know, basically like restarting from scratch. You know, we did sort of like a Indiegogo campaign to build one more character for our smallest game. And that ended up being the biggest Indiegogo uh, campaign for a game at the time ever. Uh, it raised over $800,000. We ended up making, I think, five characters. And that sort of relaunched this, this Skullgirls franchise, which frankly, even to this day, you know, nearly a decade later is still you know, popular all over the world. And we just were too stubborn to quit. I don't know if that's a good lesson or a bad lesson for an entrepreneur because, you know, there can be a lot of collateral damage when you're that stubborn, yeah. but it was the right decision for me. So then at what point does Meet Bob uh, come into the picture? Well, so, you know, then sort of, you know, a few years later, it sort of got to a point where, you know, through that experience, you know, we were kind of on a path where we, we you know, we didn't want to raise new capital. Uh, and, and we were sort of working on just like rebuilding the game out of, you know, sort of cash flows from from it. And so it was clear that that was going to be like a long haul. And uh, and so part of me was thinking, all right, well, I need to figure out another way to, um, you know, basically to survive. Um, and and then there was another part of me it was like, and also like, the games business isn't my dream job. You know, like I kind of, I'd get, you know, fan mail and like not, not, not that people were fans of me, but like people were fans of like the game franchises that we'd help make. And like, you know, we'd come occasionally give people like tours of the, of the office and stuff. And always I was thinking like, you know, like this is probably a lot of people's dream job. It's just not mine, you know? And, and uh, I wanted to, to do something that for me felt more impactful and more, and more sort of valuable for the world. and. I didn't know what that meant, but I, but I knew it was important to me. And so I started thinking about where, where could I create impact? And I just kept coming back to this idea that the web was about to go through a really significant transit transition and, and, you know, the sort of transformation from essentially a static internet with text and images to, you know, what we now see today as kind of essentially like a video network. I knew that that was going to be just fundamental, you know, that, that sort of, you know, we basically were like oral as a culture, you know, a human culture, you know, for sort of tens of thousands of years before Gutenberg. And then, you know, from the printing press and you know, to, for the last sort of 500, 550 years, you know, we've sort of had communication dominated with, you know, text and images. I, like I, I knew that this transition was really on that scale in terms of um, uh, both potential and also like sort of friction. And Having come out of the entertainment world, I felt like human creativity was always going to be important, but I also you know, had an engineering background, and so I, so I really believed in technology. And that sort of led me to this thinking, which I was like, you know what, like, if I could build a platform that could help scale human creativity, sort of like logically, the thing it would do is it would create jobs. Like, that's just, you know, how, how it would work if it worked. 
And if it was my platform, I could design it in such a way that to ensure that the jobs it created were good jobs. You know, I, I could sort of put rules in there saying, you know, like you can't sort by the cheapest creator, you know, or, or we're not going to set it up so that 100 people compete against each other and only one person gets paid, you know. And and so all so these, you know, this started to get really interesting to me where I was like, all right, you know what, like trying to create a million jobs, that's a whole lot more interesting than trying to entertain a, a million 14-year-olds. And and so I started VidMob in, in 2014. Uh, you know, the, the idea simply was, let's build a platform to, you know, sort of, you know, scale human creativity uh, and make it more efficient and, uh, and more effective. Now, one of the things that, that was very interesting here is that you guys were able to find product market fit, but the business was not rocketing forward. So, so how is that possible? Because typically when, when you really hit it on product market fit, it's like everything is falling into place, but it seems that you guys were still figuring things out. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it sort of took us, like if we launched the marketplace in the fall of 2015, I would say it took us about a year to find sort of product market fit. Um, now, at the time, that probably felt like five years. But, you know, like so we, so we launched it then. Right at launch, Apple named our, our app one of the best apps of the year. So we had sort of like accolades and things coming in. But the revenue was de minimis, you know, like, you know, $4,000 a month, $6,000 a month, you know, and, and meanwhile, we're like, oh, we grew 50%, <laughs> but, but it's like, you know, small numbers. And, you know, we didn't really know what our business was going to be at that point. We were still just very much, uh, you know, like, all right, videos eating the world. It's going to be uh, like, it wasn't clear what our niche was. And so in the fall of 2016, um, our third co-founder, Craig Koblenz, um, started working out a relationship with Snapchat. And, you know, that sort of pushed us down uh, a path to actually see kind of like the real opportunity. Um, so, you know, they had just turned on advertising in Snap. And because there were no other vertical uh, ad formats at the time, no marketers had vertical ads. And so you'd have, you know, someone like, I don't know, Budweiser, um, you know, who was interested in spending, you know, half a million, million dollars within the Snap platform, but they didn't have a vertical ad. And so they couldn't spend the money. It was like this creative friction that stood in the way, uh, stood between interest and, and spending. And so, you know, Snap had been working with, you know, more traditional agencies to solve and remove that creative friction, but they'd found it was taking, you know, in many cases, months to get the creative they needed. So that, you know, delay was not helpful and it was costing, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars so that ate into what could actually be spent on the platform. Uh, and, and frankly, often the creative wasn't, wasn't good. It was really, it was more kind of rooted in traditional, like, you know, television narrative, you know, storytelling. And so they found that on our platform, they could get it done for, you know, a few thousand dollars, get it done in a few days and have the content actually be sort of like native to the Snap environment. And it did a lot better. And so we became like really popular there um, and, you know, helped drive uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, spending on the Snap platform, you know, and again, this was like before they were, you know, this was probably three quarters before they went public. So it was, you know, it was, it was important revenue at the time. And so we found ourselves um, with a, a core group of that team at CES, I guess, like the beginning of 2017, yeah, beginning of 2017. And, you know, and they were like, you know, you guys were really helpful to us this past quarter. Like, what can we do to help you? And, and I kind of was like, all right, well, you know, at some point you're going to roll out a self-service ad buying platform. And, and when you do, then there's going to be, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of advertisers, smaller advertisers 
who struggle with their creative just the same way, you know, today, like Budweiser and the, you know, sort of big, big platforms are struggling. What we want to be is like a button there that can just like be pushed to remove that creative friction for all of those marketers. And they're like, that's a great idea, but uh, we don't have a self-service ad buying platform and our engineers are pretty busy now and a bunch of other initiatives. They're like, why don't you build it? If you build our our self-service ad buying tool, you, you can then put the button wherever you want. And so like, you know, it's, I don't even know, like one or two in the morning at CES in Las Vegas, I basically like ran back to my dorm, you know, to my room. I uh, called our CTO, woke him up and, you know, told, talked to him about the conversation. And a week later we flew out to LA and showed them a fully designed campaign manager. And wow. they, and they basically were just like, how long is it going to take to build this? And we said two months and they're like, can you build it in a month? And we did. That's amazing. And so that, that like, you know, it was just, and then people always ask me, so what's entrepreneurship like? And my answer oftentimes is it's just taking a thread and pulling on it, like a loose thread on a sweater. You know, it wasn't any strategic thought. Like it just came up in a conversation and we responded with a good idea, what felt like a good idea at the time. Next thing you knew, we built a, a tech, you know, we built a platform to plug into their ads APIs. And all of a sudden now we started having visibility into the performance of the creative that we were making. And so then we did similarly with Facebook and Instagram and then Pinterest and Twitter and Google and LinkedIn and, and all of our other partners. And, and later that year, at the end of that year, I guess, but in the end of 27, it kind of occurred to me, I'm like, all right, well, hey, we have more, we have better pro, cro, cross-platform visibility than any platform. We have better kind of cross-industry visibility than most, you know, sort of, uh, you know, agencies and such. And if only we could actually understand the actual creative content, you know, like the elements, the what's happening frame by frame, you know, what, what emotions people are exhibiting, what words are on screen, what words are being spoken, where and when logos and trademarks are coming in, you know, all these things, we could take that creative element data and compare it to all the performance data we're getting. And we could actually get to something that marketers have never seen before, which is like, not which ads are working, but why, why is this ad working? And that one's not. Or why was this ad working last week, but it's not working this week? And so, you know, that it just all came out of that one random snap conversation and the one random thought that we would then build it, you know, this campaign manager forum, which we ended up deprecating nine months later. Um, and now today, you know, this sort of creative intelligence business is really the backbone of VidMob. So was that like the the turning point where, you know, you start to see like all these big ones, you know, like Google or Facebook? Like also partnering with you guys where at that point you're like, I think we're into something. We're going to be okay. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I think that like that was a time where we felt like, you know what, we actually have a really differentiated business here. And our platform increasingly is driving real value to our clients, you know, that we can see, you know, that we can say, hey, you know, we we increased the performance of this marketer's, you know, advertising by 100, 200, 300%. And when you, and when you can see the, the budgets, you're like, okay, you know what? I just added half a billion dollars in value to this marketer. Um, you know, I think once we started seeing that, you know, we, we felt like, you know what, we're, we're actually really onto something here. And, you know, like the, the broader trend was always very clear. You know, like the move from a static web to a video web, that was clear. And what wasn't clear to us was that um, these enterprise marketers, like big, big brands, were going to need our services. I, I sort of assumed that they would always be sort of totally um, 
you know, totally fine with their agency relationships. But uh, over time, it's become very clear to me that somebody had to build sort of like a, 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 a technology platform to kind of bring their data and creativity together and, and help bring a lot more intelligence to creative decision making. And, and, and now today, you know, we, we work with many of the largest agencies. We work with, you know, probably the majority of the sort of, you know, top 20, top 50 marketers in the world. Uh, and, and we really work with like all of the big, you know, modern ad platforms. So in terms of uh, of capital as well, I mean, obviously to support this growth, you need a bit of money. So how much capital have you guys raised today? If you had asked me a month ago, I would have said we've raised $45 million, but we actually just closed a $50 million Series C, um, which, you know, we'll be, we'll be announcing um, probably right around the time this, this, <laughs> this podcast goes live. Nice. Very cool. So that will be a, a total of about 80? Uh, total just just under $100 million. Just under 100. Very nice. Congratulations. So I guess, uh, you know, just for the people that are, that are listening now to get an idea of the, of the size of Bitmap, I mean, anything that you can share in terms of maybe like employee count or anything like that? I think we're at 135 employees now. Um, so to put some, you know, context around it, you know, for those first few years, we were, you know, right around 10, you know, I think sort of 12 employees. Uh, and then when we raised our Series A, we grew from sort of 10 to call it, you know, 2025. 20, when we raised the uh, the Series B, we were about 60 people. Um, and now, you know, again, it's kind of almost doubled. So, yeah, and we, we have operations, you know, we have offices really kind of across the U.S., headquarters in New York and then offices in Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, Western Massachusetts, and then sort of small satellites in a few other cities. We have a, uh, a team in, in Sao Paulo, uh, in, in, uh, in Brazil, uh, to serve, to service the Latin market. Uh, and we have, um, offices in, in London, in Dublin and, uh, in Tel Aviv. Very cool. So let's say you go to sleep tonight, Alex, and you wake up in a world five years later when the vision of Bitmap is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, I think there's, you know, to me, there's kind of like the, you know, let's call it the the five year and the ten year. In, in the five year, what we're trying to do is is build what we sort of think of as like the you know, like operating system for creativity. So my my you know my my vision is that the same way today, no sort of sensible sales organization would think about running their you know global sales operation without having you know salesforce or some sort of underlying you know saas platform there to help it run you know, you know manage the leads and 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 bring intelligence to you know sort of uh, you know go to market and all those things like we firmly believe that that there's a similar opportunity to build kind of like a salesforce for creative operations and so 5 years from now i would hope that any and all marketers are are using our platform to either run their in-housing teams or to bring their sort of media agency teams and their creative agency teams together so that their creative operations and their sort of media data operations are kind of brought together and, and that they're making all their creative decisions with real intelligence driving that. In the 10-year time horizon, our, our view generally is that the same way kind of payment friction suffused the web for the first 20 years of its existence and, and that sort of uh, was for a while a barrier to you know commerce online and and uh, and much of the kind of internet's potential. We believe going forward there's going to be sort of more and more kind of creative friction as a barrier to you know the sort of internet living up to its potential. 
And so as really all platforms transition from text and images to, to video and beyond that AR and, and just more complex media types, we think that that creative friction is going to exist everywhere. So, you know, on every dating site, on every like job site, on every like home buying and Airbnb and like, you know, really everywhere you can imagine. And we're essentially trying to construct a series of APIs that can just be plugged in in each and every one of those friction points and help, you know, remove the friction and bring intelligence to it, to the process so that, you know, the person creating that, you know, video resume or the, the other home, they're actually being uh, advised by data on how to make, you know, basically the best possible content for their, for their goals. Very cool. So let's just say, Alex, now that I'm bringing you in the, in the time machine, you know, we're going back in time and I'm taking you to, um, to a time where, you know, you're thinking about like maybe what you're going to be doing, what's going to be maybe a business that you're going to be launching, you know, that younger self, that younger Alex, and you have a chance there to, to talk to your younger self and give your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why knowing what you know now? Yeah. So like, I don't think that I would change anything. You know, I think that it's important. I like, I wouldn't try and avoid the painful times. Um, you, you know, like I wouldn't like all of those things were important parts of making me who I am. And I don't think I would want to even like remove the, the, um, suspense of it. You know, like, I think it's important for people to struggle, you know, because ultimately it's through struggle that we're able to uh, enjoy the highs, uh, you know, all the more. So, you know, if anything, if I was going to talk to me a long time ago, I would just say, you know, <laughs> buckle up um, and, you know, don't sweat the, uh, the downtimes uh, and, and know that in the end, you know, uh, everything happens for a reason. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So, Alex, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Colmerica, and uh, you, know, you can go on the VidMob site, and there's a whole bunch of different ways to find us there through our blog or, or anything else. Amazing. Well, Alex, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Andre. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to AlejandroCremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.